You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, hello. Welcome to the GFR show. This is Lisa Cherney, and I'm going to kick us off with a question here. What does it mean to you when you're, quote, all in on something? This is a phrase that I hadn't really thought about, like, in a deep way, but our guest today, Mr. Senika, the Firestarter Street, is all about being all in. His platform, The All-In Method, empowers men to live a life of alignment and integrity by empowering them to go all in on their body, their business, and their being, to be better husbands, fathers, and leaders. Isn't that just a beautiful mission, if I ever heard one? And he did not come to this mission lightly. (laughs) You can probably assume that if you've listened to any other episodes of the GFR show, we are all about the dark night of the soul that births and informs our mission. And so Sanika is no stranger to that as well. And he's specifically going to talk to us about what he calls the rock bottom sandwich that he found himself in seven years ago as a songwriter in LA. And at the time he had two DUIs, his girlfriend was paying his bills and he was driving a 1992 BMW 325i. It sounds for me, it's funny to be so specific about a car, but for him, this car was a major character in his story. And you will soon learn a lot more about that. I think you will really appreciate the spirit to which he comes to what he shares and the lessons that he's learned along the way. And I just so thoroughly enjoyed him. I am proud to have two cute handsome, bald black men on my show, two episodes in a row. And in fact, I connected Rodney and Sinika because I feel like there's something there. They're just such great men. And of course, the whole bald thing, I'm definitely uh, have a bias because my hubby who does the voiceover for the show, if you didn't know that, he's the, the voiceover for Welcome to the GFR show. He also is bald and I love it. <laughs> If you're new to the show, I'm so glad you're here. Make sure you subscribe because these stories are as good, if not better, every single time. And I don't think you want to miss any of them. If you are a mission-driven, purpose-driven, 
soul driven entrepreneur because these stories will keep you going so that you can, you know, do the work you're here to do. So without further ado, Mr. Sanika, the Firestarter Street. Sanika, Firestarter Street. I am so happy to have you here. I am glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited. I was uh, the first thing I said to you when we got onto our like our prep call was I get to have two powerful, bald, handsome black men in a row on my show. <laughs> and I'm very excited. <laughs> uh, I take your handsome and I definitely double down on the bald. Uh, so I very much appreciate that as well. Well, you know, my husband has the same hairdo as y'all, so I'm a little partial to it myself. (laughs) Listen, the the two best things I ever did in my life, number one was uh, was grow a beard. And uh, the second one is uh, is stop drinking. And and those two things coupled along with the bald head are just game changers. And I do recommend that everyone try the beard thing, including you. Like, I believe I believe in your ability to grow a beard. And I just say, go with it. If you feel it, go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Well, I'm all, I'm all for gender fluidity and, you know, you do you kind of stuff. So I think maybe I, I'll go to like a costume shop. It's just that time of year. Anyway, that costume shops are like, please come back. You know, <laughs> I think I'll, I'll just, I'll get one just to kind of like try it on. <laughs> nice, That's nice. awesome. That's Good awesome. Stuff. Well, my husband first shaved his head because he lost a bet. Mm. And he was, this is back in the day when he was working for Hagen dazs mm-hmm. and he worked in the plants when they were starting up new products, which was always a shit show because it was like a whole new process. And he would work with creative things like, you know, cookies and caramel and all kinds of stuff. He was trying to incentivize the guys on the line to hit a certain, you know, mark. And he said, okay, if you do this, if you, if we have a clean run, you know, by 1 a.m., because it was like, you know, 24 hours, like I will shave my head. And they did it. And he shaved his head and he's been doing it ever since. And that was like, I don't know, that was like 20 years ago or something. (laughs) Mm, Wow. Wow. Listen, that journey to shaving his head, to becoming the person that he is, like it's a it's a really hard thing to let go of the hair. Like I know people, uh, listen, I can still grow my hair. I know that there are guys. So can he, I think a little bit, but, but not much. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there are still people who are out here holding on to strands and let I this know. be a PSA. PSA to, about uh, strands, y'all. To everyone holding on to strands. Like this is whatever aspects of your identity that you feel like you need to shift out of or let go of. This is the opportunity to be able to do it. So I'm, I'm just giving you love. I'm giving you grace. Let go, take out the bick and just roll with it. I love it. I love it. It's <laughs> hair is such a fascinating thing. My mom had cancer when I was like 16, but she had mm. another like 35 years later. So last year she had another playful bouts with cancer mm. and she, she never totally hundred percent lost her hair, but it's, it was phenomenal. I'm the one who shaved her head, which mm-hmm. I thought was just like a beautiful poignant and just just yeah such a multi-layered experience really it's just so fascinating how identified we are with certain with certain parts of our body with certain attributes um you know my mom's cancer was breast cancer when she was when i was 16 Mm -hmm. and she had a single mastectomy her left breast was removed and that just planted in me like okay yeah i like my breast but like hey if they're gonna give me trouble be gone with you like there's something that implanted in me then that just 
like released attachment to that, Mm -hmm. to that as a non-negotiable part of my body, you know? Mm. And uh, so I appreciate that sentiment and that invitation that you just gave everybody. It's, uh, it's powerful. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the conversation around identity informs how we move through the world, right? So if we are having a conversation about hair and about, you know, who we think we are as a result of our, listen, your, your hair is a, is a component of identity, but your hair doesn't inform your identity. You inform your, you, you assign the meaning to what the, the, the hairdo is or the whatever way of being that accompanies that, you know, that aspect of your identity. So that, that's a really, that's a really important thing. You know, it's that, uh, like, as you talked about the hair, it's like, cause once you get rid of the hair, right. It's like somebody who's shifting out of a nine to five job and stepping into being an entrepreneur for the first time. It's like, you are stepping out of the, of the human being that you used to know you're stepping into this new identity. Are you ready to rock and roll? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I love that. So take me back to young Sanika and how he identified himself or how he saw himself when he was a teenager. Great question. As a teenager, I would say that my identity was really draped in fear. Mm. I mean, look, I'm a big guy, right? I'm six, eight. I weigh 290 pounds. I played, you know, collegiate athletics and now, um, but then, and even then, you know, or, or talking about, you know, adolescence to teenager and, and then, you know, through my teenage years, I, I very much lived in fear. And the reason I feel like I, one of the reasons I feel like I lived in fear is because, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I grew up in a, a really tough neighborhood initially. And then I moved to Maryland and went to high school in Maryland um, in the suburbs of D.C. But, you know, where I grew up, you know, I used to when I was younger, I used to I grew up, you know, people called them bullies. I was like, these are felons. <laughs> you know, these are, <laughs> I was like, I don't know what a bully is. What is yeah, a bully? Back in my day, they called these felons. They called bullies felons. <laughs> <laughs> right. like, these were convicted criminals, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so. Um, so going to the, the corner store or going to get a loaf of bread or something like that, that used to be an adventure for me every day as a kid. And so I believe that everybody has a, a, a unique curriculum that they have been assigned on this planet to experience. Amen to that, yes. And uh, and so that was very much a part of my curriculum. And so my initial stage in the identity phase was about was living in fear, fear of acceptance of who I am, fear of acceptance of of my full expression, fear of acceptance of who I really wanted to be. So yeah, so it was definitely in fear and and feeling lost. And at the same time, at the same time, these two aspects happened simultaneously. Is that at the same time I feel like I was shrouded in fear. I was also exceptionally gifted. And I feel like, you know, even in your lowest, darkest moments, you're not good enough to stifle your own gift. And so I've always had a sort of this exponential potential. It's just that the fear was preventing me from stepping into living in it consistently. Yes, yes, yes. So you talk about your current stature were you as a young person also the stature that would sort of stand out among your friends you know or you know you're like sort of the blossom early kind of tall kid or I've always been the biggest person in every room you know? <laughs> <laughs> so 
I've been the biggest person in every room. I, I had a situation the other day. I walked into Target. This dude followed me into the bathroom. He was like, he opened the door for me first. And then he followed me into the bathroom. And then he was like, excuse me, sir. He's like, do you play football? I get that all the time. He's like, do you play? He's like, what football team do you play for? I was like, um, I don't play football. He's like, you know, I just, I just feel like I need to get your autograph, you know? Wow. And I was like, dude, did you follow me in the bathroom? I was like, I understand what women go. I was like, what is going on in this dude's mind? It was the most fascinating thing. I mean, look, I'm at the point in my life where I'm, I am not surprised at sort of being a, a standout in the places that I go. I just live in greater acceptance of it at this point in my life. You know? Yeah. Yes. So. Yes. So as I think, you know, I, this year, part of my divine curriculum has been unconscious bias. Hmm. Um, both unconscious racial bias, as well as my own personal experience, unconscious anti-fat bias and discovering my own internalized fat phobia and really doing a deep dive into the whole world of caste and just, oh my God, I'm just, and how that relates to body size and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sort of fascinated by that story that you just told, because I want to know, was he white? I want to know if you were white and a big guy, would he still have done the same thing? You know, like, is it more like, as you were a big black man that he thought you were a football player? Like, I'm just fascinated by that whole scenario. What was your take? This is such a great question and great line of questioning, right? So before I dive into it, you said, you know, why do I think that that occurred the way that it occurred, right? As an occurrence. Yes. And I think that that question, if I was anyone who was listening to this podcast, I would write that down as a question to inform the way that I move through the world from this point moving forward. Why did that occur the way that that occurred? Right. One of the things is that I always say is that in the, in the matter of my experience of the world, I am cause. Right. I am cause. Yes. So because I. Right. I comes after cause. So, so when I say because some, the reason that something occurred, well, it's because I believed, felt, experienced, right? So I am informing what is occurring. Yes. So the reason I feel like it occurred is because he felt connected to me in some way. He felt that there was some aspect of himself that he wanted to explore through me and through that experience. And whether or not he was white, my, I do my best to drop things down to, to, the, to whatever the baseline level. I try to extract what I call color, right? Adjective, unnecessary adjectives that used to inform a situation, just so I can see it as an occurrence. He was a man. He came into the bathroom. He was curious about me. He wanted to learn more. Why did he want to learn more, right? Just the humanity of it is kind of how I'm hearing what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, absolutely. So, so why did he want to learn more about me, right? And so so then that informs, so, you know, informed my experience. I didn't feel threatened. I don't feel threatened in that, that kind of situation. I can see how someone could feel threatened though. All right. I could see how trauma could inform the way someone would feel threatened. I could see how that situation happening to somebody who didn't have the physical stature that I have, somebody, who, you know, a woman, and depending on the size of the guy, how that could create a different dynamic. But just based on the dynamic in my experience of the world, I was looking at that guy and I said, oh, he was, he was curious about me. He, he saw something in, in me that re reminded him of himself that he wanted to explore. That's the way that I see it. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. So how did your experience change when you moved to Maryland for high school from where <laughs> you were? I grew up around, I, in an entirely black community. The only white kid on the block was my friend. <laughs> the only. The only white kid on the block was my friend. 
And I realized, and, I, and I'm the youngest of four, and I was actually just telling my wife, Katie, about an experience where none of the Black kids in my neighborhood liked his family. His family is two Methodist preachers, and him, his name is Christopher. But he was my friend. You know, I just, I saw him as a, as a human. I connected with him. We were friends, and then we just became friends. And I just saw how that neighborhood wore down on the family. And then eventually they moved to Minnesota. Hmm. You know, um, shout out to Minnesota. Minnesota. Um, <laughs> but they moved. And I saw how that experience wore down on him. Well, then I, tra- I'm, I moved out of D.C. to Maryland, and I went to high school in a, a city called Bethesda. Yes. I'm, I'm an East Coast gal. I grew up in New Jersey. And so I'm familiar with, you know, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, like this, that whole. I'm familiar with the phenomenon of Maryland being a suburb of Washington, D.C., which people wouldn't necessarily. With. So I. I <laughs> for, yeah. for sure. Yeah, we call it we call it the Delaware. DMV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but going to high school, you know, I was in a small group of, uh, of black kids in a predominantly white school. And the interesting thing about me is that none of my closest friends when I was going in high school were African-American. They were African. They were from another country. They were from Ethiopia and from Nigeria and from, you know, but like none of them were like, were African-American. Born uh, and co- raised in America. Yeah, born and raised. So I had tons yeah. of friends, like tons of friends who were African-American, but they weren't my closest friends. I had mm. my, my, one of my, cl- my core friends was Jewish. Another friend was Caucasian. His family is Italian. My friend Paul and then my other friend Tony was from Costa family from Costa Rica. It was just like all the and my best friend Sam is from Ethiopia. So I was like this multicultural experience really just informed my way of being. So I've lived a very multicultural lifestyle very much. But here's the one thing I will tell you is that even coming out of D.C., coming into uh, to Maryland, the one thing that we do transfer from room to room is who we think we are. And, and in that moment, in the, during that period of time, I didn't feel like, like I was worthy of stepping into some form of my greatness. You know, so I was, again, borderline, you know, right at the edge of being, you know, being talented and gifted and all these other things, but just still untapped human potential at that time. What do you think kept it at bay? Fear of disappointing people. Who? When you draw a line in the sand to become the person that you want to be. Right. So that's the, you know, stepping into the greatest authentic expression of yourself. As a result of stepping into that, the person that I wanted to be was an extrovert. I wanted to be a leader in my group. I wanted to be a leader in my class. I wanted to be a leader on my team. And in high school, especially in college, I was team captain and that kind of stuff. But in high school, I would say that that version of myself, when I transferred out of there, I was afraid to draw a line in the sand because I was afraid of, disappo- of disappointing anyone that, you know, that I would have to, to, to challenge with a personal stand or a belief, right? Any aspect of me that needed to, to call somebody forward, to challenge somebody on an idea, to call somebody out. And I'm trying to think of an example and, and to, to contextualize it. But if, I, if you look at it from a standpoint of basketball, you know, there's there's guys on the team who are who are doing what they need to be doing. There's guys on the team who are not stepping up into their greatness. And though I was witness, though I had there were team captains on the team, I had a very acute view of it. But I, I wasn't ready to challenge them into, into stepping into their greatness because I was afraid of stepping into mine. Right. So so it informed this situation. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to challenge somebody because. I don't want them to call me out for not being. So it just created this paradigm of just monotony. And, I and was were just, you conscious of that? Were you conscious of that? Like, I don't want to call them out because then they're going to call me out and I'm not, you know. Oh, for sure. I was aware of that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I was aware of that. Yeah. 
So what changed from high school to college? Because it sounds like in college you did embody more of the leader that you felt you were to be. Yeah. The difference is, is I started to work for it. I started to understand the cost of not doing it. Was there something in particular that had you get connected with that? Yeah. I wanted to be a scholarship basketball player on the biggest stages in division one college basketball. And because of the way that I was moving while I was in high school, I was not, I didn't have the grades. I didn't have the, the relationships to be able to transition into that type of on that stage. And I was super disappointed by it. Mm. And the funny thing about it is that the disappointment that I felt like I was avoiding and challenging people, I was experiencing it myself. Right. <laughs> so I was experiencing that level of disappointment. And so then I, I made a decision. I really drew a line in the sand. I said, yo, you, this is where you need to like go all in. You got to really push yourself to, um, to get your life together. So I went to junior college. I went to my coach and my coach was like, you know, Senyika, my players stay three years. And they play one year, they redshirt a second year, and they play three years. I was like, you want me to stay in junior college for three years? I was like, you must have lost your mind. I was like, look, <laughs> I said, I'm going to play basketball one year. I'm going to sit out my second year, and then I'm going to transfer so I have three years of eligibility to play. He was like, well, I don't know how you're going to do that. I said, well, yeah, I'm going to figure it out. I literally went to the, I packed up my, I didn't take SAT, so I packed up my loads. I had to graduate from junior college. Packed up 15 to 18 credits per semester. I was in the library every single day, like studying every day. I didn't go in the cafeteria and hang out with the guy. I was never that kid. I was in the ca- in the library studying, getting my, cl- my classwork done, just making sure that I was on top of my game. And, and then in terms of school, and then on top of my game as well, and just pushing myself in that capacity. I ended up playing my first year, uh, getting most improved player on my team. And I beat out a guy who was on the Puerto Rican national team. Uh, it's for my spot halfway through the season. And then the second year, I actually got a scholarship playing in practice. So I didn't even need to be on the court. I actually wow. just, I was just, I got recruited, played on practice. And then I got my scholarship to a division one school. And I went to the university of Maryland. Nice. I got into the university of Maryland myself. Mm. <laughs> and I, I actually forgot. I, my, my daughter's now going through the whole college thing. And she's like, well, how many schools did you apply to? And where'd you get in? And I had like, I didn't retain none of that. And I actually had to like, look it up. That's so, awesome. Uh, it's a huge school. I just remember I visited it and it just was huge. So you you might have went to College Park. I went to Eastern Shore. Okay. Yeah. Okay. More intimate. Yeah. More intimate there. Yeah. For sure. Nice. 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 So part of where we're heading in your story is what you call a rock bottom sandwich that happened around the age of 35. So if you can bring us from this young man who sounds like from your own volition just decided after high school, like I, this, no, we're, we're doing, we're doing things differently. And you changed your trajectory and wound up where you wanted to play. What do you want to share with us next that helps us understand how you got to that painful rock bottom place? This is really where things heat up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. After high school, I, I wanted to pursue, I mean, after college, I exited college 
with an internship at the Voice of America. I was I was doing radio. Okay. And I was at the Voice of America. For those who don't know what Voice of America is, it, it is the branch of the US government that broadcasts radio programming abroad. So I was doing an internship at the Voice of America and I was actually working at the Voice of America when uh, when 9/11 happened. Wow. So um so they evacuated us on that day when 9/11. So I remember like when my internship was winding down, I was like, "Oh man, this is just wild stuff." So Um, so yeah, so from there I wanted to get into radio because that was the biggest thing really moving in DC in terms of like celebrity and stuff like that. And I I remember the first time I went to to on a I worked for the local radio station, which is WPGC, which was Infinity Broadcasting at the time, it was a branch of CBS radio. And then as soon as I got there, this dude who was working there for years, he was like, You need to leave. And I said, What? He said, he said, you're too smart to be here. So you need to go. (laughs) He said, I was like, what is happening? But he was right. So I transitioned from radio and then I over a short, maybe a couple of years. And then I really wanted to get into acting. So then I went into acting. I, I auditioned for NYU School of the Arts. I auditioned for Tish. Thank God I did not get in, by the way. <laughs> Thank God. Because I have no formal training. <laughs> I ain't no, I mean, Remember I, that when your kid decides he wants to do something and he tries out or auditions or applies and he doesn't get it mm-hmm. and you feel crushed for him just remember that moment yeah i am because yeah okay i'm good. gonna i'm gonna soak that in because i tell you i've been there my girl was like <laughs> I, you know she wanted to go to some performing arts high school she auditioned it was like all she wanted to do she did not get in i forgot that the universe has a plan and i was completely crushed you know, she didn't get in and and i tell you gosh was that the best that was so in the divine right order and she decided like the next year she didn't want to do dance as a career and as having a blast in high school uh, yeah. in regular high school so so you didn't, you didn't get into NYU. <laughs> I did not get into NYU for sure. And I, I hear you on, you know, the, the feeling of being crushed for you when your kid doesn't get it. But yeah, but again, uh, the divine curriculum. Totally. Right. So this is just some bullet points. I, yeah, I audi- me and my my partner at the time, we auditioned for a reality show on Fox and, and then we ended up getting on the TV show. And so this is when like when Fox was rolling out these big primetime reality shows and they were like, oh, we're going to dominate reality TV. And um, and so we got on the show, you know, we became like, you know, they, they were like, you know, doing the whole reality TV star thing. Yeah. What and show? It was called The Complex Malibu. Okay. And it was like in 2004, yeah, 2004. So we did that show. It started to whet my appetite for acting in a different way. I had a really weird conversation with Omarosa from The Apprentice about how she got her <laughs> agent at a gala. And then she was like, you know what you need to, she's like, look, if you want to do if you want to do acting, you need to go to New York or LA. And my partner had just moved from New York. And then we had, you know, had the conversation, the, the thing with NYU and Tish. And I was like, well, I didn't get into Tish. So we might as well just move to LA. Yeah. So then we moved New to York's LA. New York's dead to me. <laughs> New York's dead, right. Exactly. New York's dead. So it was dead to me. So we moved to LA. So I, we moved to LA. I was pursuing acting, you know, full time. I did, everybody was like, you're not going to get any work because you're too big and all this other kind of stuff. I did three national commercials, two TV shows, and I did a couple movies in my first few years out here. I took acting for granted, acting slowed down. I then started working and promoting nightclubs and I started meeting some of the biggest music producers and everything like that. And then I got into, I really stepped into what I really wanted to do, which is writing. I I call my, I'm 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 a writer at heart. Ah. Um, I just call myself a writer trapped in the body of an NFL lineman. So, yeah, I mean, writing is, I mean, now we're getting into 
like overt creativity, which I haven't heard you share about up until this point. So if that has been under the surface, I mean, acting is creative, but, you know, writing is kind of like comes through you in your own sort of Mm -hmm. self-expression where actor, obviously you're taking on the role of some, you know, somebody else. For sure. It's a completely different, it's a completely different channel. And so then I went to, um, I started collaborating with some of the people who I knew from the club scene. I started working on uh, with artists and then I got signed to a label on Universal Music Group and then I started songwriting for artists. So I started songwriting for like rappers like Too Short, um, boy bands like Nick Lachey and 98 Degrees. I was doing rap and hip hop and rock and all that other kind of stuff, a bunch of different genres. Nice. And then writing was the greatest journey for me because to be a really good writer, you needed to have really good human qualities, you know, being uh, vulnerable, uh, knowing how to collaborate, knowing how to be transparent. And I did not realize that those were skills that you could actually learn. Mm. I used to think that they were innate qualities. And to some people, they may seem innate just because they've been able to a- adapt and absorb those qualities. But I believe that every human virtue is a skill. So um, it's a skill that you can actually learn. Those were skills that I did not embody, especially at that time. So that's when I, I fell into a depression in my early 30s. I was, you know, financially broke. I was emotionally broken. Two DUIs, girlfriends paying the bills, 40 pounds overweight. I was making $11 an hour working at a reverse phone lookup company called Spokio, where the owner, like basically were old women were calling, looking up the guy who took them for their money on a dating site. And, um, and I mean, like, this was really just like the low point of my life. The sort of the visual that accompanies this is I was driving a 92 BMW 325i that I had bought with $2,500 that I borrowed from my sister because I needed some, you know, something to get around. But at the same time, I felt so ashamed of that car that I would drive it to a location and park it so far away. I might as well have just walked to the location. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so. I and I love the the visual and how specific you are about the car. It's such a great sort of touch touch point. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, the car is great because people ask me what kind of car I drive. I told them a BMW. You right, know? right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> they go, oh yeah, yeah. So I feel like I want to go a little bit more specific. Like I feel like I'm missing something because I feel like you're like the songwriter and you're working all these great bands and you're, I don't know, like it sounded like you're really in the scene. And then it was, and I got into a depression and, you know, I was driving this shitty car and I feel like I'm not totally, I feel like there's something more that you may want to share that helps us track with how you, you know, the road to the bottom. I feel Mm. like did something happen? Did I don't know, was there some kind of crisis or rejection? And I feel like there's something more that you may want to share that would help us. Yeah. So here's the thing about, thanks for that, that for bringing that up. The thing about songwriting is that songwriting is very similar to sales and songwriting puts you in direct partnership awareness about how you handle rejection rejection and abandonment are my two core wounds Mm. and fear of being rejected, fear of being abandoned. 
I believe that there are five core wounds, fear, rejection, abandonment, injustice, betrayal. And so the, so for me, rejection, abandonment, which were my two, two, my two primary things. And, and as a result of stepping into songwriting, like to be talented and skilled and, and actually be able to pay for, you know, like to have sustainable success, you need to be able to develop relationships and understand collaboration and understand like all those different things. And, and I, and I was not in the emotional space to be vulnerable enough to invite people in. There was that. So I think that the thing that was happening during that period of time really was my, my first experience with shame in a really powerful way, because, because I did not achieve the success that I, that I believed that I wanted to achieve because I was not where I felt like I really wanted to be at. I was hiding what I was experiencing, right? I wasn't transparent about what I was really experiencing. So I wasn't inviting people in to be able to provide me with any level of insight or support. I didn't, I didn't even know what a mentor, what like really how to even seek mentorship. I didn't have any community. I didn't have any of those things. I was just uh, incubating my own ideas. And so I was basically coming up with these ideas that I thought were really brilliant. Right. But I'm, I'm the one who's telling myself that these ideas are brilliant and I'm not vetting them. I'm not seeking reflection. And they're not being purchased or adapted yeah. by an artist. And so that in itself can be interpreted as rejection. Absolutely. If you're looking for rejection, that can be interpreted as rejection. That is very much the case. So I was very much interpreting that as rejection. I saw it as rejection and, and I thought of myself as a failure. It just reaffirmed the fact that it, it reaffirmed everything that I felt like I had moved through from my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I feel like you're, you had a series of really life affirming kind of uh, opportunities, you know, mm -hmm. with pretty, I mean, from radio into acting into reality TV, like those were all like, you were kind of moving along at a pace where you felt like, yeah, okay. Like I'm moving along. I'm having this quote unquote success that I want. And, yep. and it sounds like the songwriting thing really not only did you get into a much more vulnerable place and we're taking much more of a risk, but you didn't quite have the success that you like that you were accustomed to. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that I think that's a fair assessment. At the same time, I don't even know if I knew what success really meant because I the other part about it during that period of time, Lisa, is I, I didn't I had never journeyed to understand who I really wanted to be. You know? Yeah, because when you tell the story, it's like I showed up at radio and the radio guy said I was too smart. So I left and I did this and someone said this. So I did that. I mean, it does sound like you were susceptible or influenced and not necessarily like that's a bad thing, but that it was more an external influence and contribution versus an internal drive for the, the basketball to me was that was internal and yeah. that was like all you. And then from there, when it came to like career, you were finding yourself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so the two points, the basketball internal writing internal, I've been writing since I was in fourth grade, right? Writing poems when I was, since I was in fourth grade, I used to, I wanted to be a, a hip hop artist when I was 12, okay. right? I wanted to, to be okay. a rapper when I was 12. So the artist, the artist got put on the back burner in a big way for artists, 10 years. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, the, and so then, so that, it was completely put on the back burner. 
it was not a component of, it was not, it was not allowed. It was not a part of who I was really supposed to be. It was not allowed. Yeah. So especially with my perception in terms of who I was supposed to be, right? This big, big, strong, tough guy who's supposed to embody all these different characteristics and qualities. Yes. So that was the component where I was like, the creative in me has has very much been a, a sort of this wavering battle of the soul for very a long part of my life, right? Yes. So, but the but the thing that writing brought up in me that was that I hadn't done my healing work, you know, is that I hadn't stepped into the healing work, and that's the that was the greatest gift I could have ever been given, is that I had some inner child work I needed to do, I had some identity work that I needed to do, I had some somatic healing to do. I had some leadership training I needed to do. I had all those different things that I needed to bring into into my universe to start this process of of unfolding and revealing to myself who I could possibly be. Yeah. I have a out of the blue question, but it's just an intuitive thing that's coming to me. Go for it. Your father's role in the early self-identification and the shame that you're referring to, was there a role that he played in that? Oh, substantially. Yeah. I mean, uh, you talk about rage. I had it towards my father Mm. and rage was an understatement. You know, my father is a very talented architect guy. He was a leader in his community. He was a leader of of different economic movements during the seventies and for black people and, and advancement of black people rights in DC and helping black people to buy land so they could be a you know, owning, owning their, creating their future. Just mm-hmm. all that stuff, kind of stuff. That's how my mom met him. They were activists. So, um, so they, you know, they met each other and, you know, my relationship with my father, it was that he, I'm the youngest of four. So he had three kids before me. I'm seven years younger than my, my, the next brother. Ah. So, so basically at that point, at the point in time when my mom had, had me, their relationship was on the decline. Mm. And then by that time, my father was basically withdrawing from our relationship. And then by the time I was seven, he was gone. And so, you know, I used to visit my father and he lived in Baltimore, which is, you know, 45 minutes north of D.C. But but the thing about my father was that my father was and, you know, is a he was the kind of guy and to some degree still is the kind of the kind of guy that is he didn't understand how to how to how to empathize, how to connect emotionally, how to human, right? In that way with with any of his kids, including me. So, um, so he's, I mean, you talk about a wall, his is the great wall of China, mm. right? And, um, and so piercing his armor was very, very challenging. And all I really wanted was my father's love. I did not feel as though I was able to receive it as a result of not feeling like I was able to receive it, it just created this resistance in me and eventually became animosity and resentment. And then that just festered over time. And then by the time I was 13, I stopped visiting my father and I just, I just created my own distance from him at the same rate. And you had moved and then, you know, shortly after you moved and so the like physical distance probably helped that. And the, the poet, that young poet in you, had no validation for that expression, um, that sensitivity, that view of the world. That is for sure. That is for sure. So yeah, that, that was a very much a, I, I used to experience it and I used to experience validation and rejection. And, pl- and I just want to inform this when I say rejection, 
Rejection is what I felt. Right. Right. Rejection is what I felt. It is not necessarily the state of things. It's just the way that I experienced what was happening. So I felt personally felt rejected by my father. And, and there were times where I felt rejected by my mother, even though I felt supported by her at the same rate. So, um, but that was a very sensitive part of me, the most sensitive part of me. And as a result of that feeling of rejection during that period of time, it made that aspect of me retreat. Yeah. So I feel like that's a full circle to when you got into the songwriting as, you know, so you now became a professional poet, if you will. I think songwriters mm-hmm. are. And that was the most like the mushiest part of yourself that had yet to really be healed. So it makes sense that you were struggling with alcohol at the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the struggle with alcohol was it was a lubricant. You know, I never described myself as an alcoholic. I didn't have a chemical dependency on it, you know, to that degree. I just call myself a problem drinker. And the definition of problem drinking is when you drink, you have problems. So (laughs) I had all types of problems. I had emotional problems. I had relationship problems. I had money problems every time I drank. So I had a drinking problem. So, and it was, it was very much a part of my, just my way during that period of time. So I used it as a social lubricant. I used it as a fear lubricant. I used it to lubricate anything that I felt like I didn't want to feel in those periods. Yeah. And yeah, that became my, my way. Yeah. I think a lot of artists that is, I feel like at the heart of so much addiction, if I could use that generalized term, I feel like the creative being the artist, the expressive part of ourselves is really fucking uncomfortable. Mm. (laughs) And so it, it makes total sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. So, yeah. And so you painted the picture of your rock bottom with the car you were driving and not being in, you characterize yourself as overweight and financially struggling. Like what turned it around? And I'm thinking of that high school graduate who just decided that the next phase was going to be different and buckled down. And I kind of feel like you're about to tell me the same thing. Mm. something inside you, but you tell me. (laughs) Mm. So let me, let me rephrase this. Okay. The thing that transformed me when I got out of high school was I had a coach who gave a shit about me. Mm. Nice. Steve Hobson. Shout out to Steve. Shout out to Steve. He actually called me the like last year during the pandemic. And he was like, I asked my son to track you down because I always thought that you were one of my prize athletes, students. And I always thought you were a great human being. I wanted to let you know that he's wow. he much older now. And wow, I got the chills. Yeah, that was really a beautiful moment. I had a coach who gave a shit about me. And it was it was through reflection. Like I needed somebody to help me to see there was a greater possibility within myself. And he did it nice. very much did it. And I think that's what I was looking for yes. in my life. The thing that turned me around when I was at my lowest point, literally like at the, the flat line, was a community of entrepreneurs. So I joined a community of entrepreneurs called Metal International. And which is one of the ways that Charles is affiliated, you know, me and Charles know each other. But I got affiliated with with this community of entrepreneurs. And just FYI, this community of entrepreneurs are older, predominantly white male. Right. Interesting. And, and you considered yourself an entrepreneur as a songwriter. Is that? No, nope. tra- I didn't okay. know what the hell. I didn't have, know what an entrepreneur How was. How the hell did you, get, what, did you get there? <laughs> I just, I just needed somewhere to go. 
broken, depressed. I, you found I mean, your I, way to metal. <laughs> I, I was just, I didn't know what an entrepreneur at 35. I was like, what is business? Mm. What is that? You know, like what is business? What is entrepreneur? What is, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't never self-identify myself as an entrepreneur. I never said, I mean, I, I called myself a songwriter, you know, but I definitely did not label myself as an entrepreneur. I definitely didn't label myself as a businessman. Right. So, but when I joined this community of entrepreneurial men who were living their lives on purpose, then I was like, we used to meet at this theater in LA and it's like, a, imagine like a Ted talk every Saturday from nine nice. to 1 AM where the, some of the biggest speakers in the world come and they present, you know, nice. so, and then we connect and we meet. And so, so that was, you know, seven years ago and that community literally helped me to transform my life. You know, the reflection of like being able to receive. And I, and I remember the first guy that challenged me on living, living a, a greater version of myself, stepping into a new possibility of myself. Shout out to Ryan, right? He was like, he asked me, he said, so what are you trying to do with your life? I was like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just, you know, trying to figure things out. And he, I was like, maybe I want to start a blog. He said, so when's the, when are you going to do it? I was like, what do you mean? When am I going to do it? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, as entrepreneurs, we're like, when, when, what's the deadline? Right. What's when the launch gonna, date? <laughs> right. I was like, what do you mean, when I'm going to do it? You better get out of my face. I don't know <laughs> when I'm going to do it. And then I sat with it and I was like, oh, he's trying to hold me accountable. It's like, what is accountability? <laughs> I was like, listen, these are all foreign concepts to me at that period of time. I know what none of that stuff was. And I'm in this community where guys are talking about this high level stuff that's some much of it going over my head, but I'm just loving the being in the room, feeling the, mm. the breathing, the air of people who are living their life on purpose and just trying to figure out why it was only men. And then I was like, why is it only, only a men's community? I'd never been at a, I mean, other than sports or I'd never been at a fraternity. I was like, what's the purpose mm. of this only being men? And then slowly over time, I started to realize the relationship between things like vulnerability, shame, accountability, reflection, and men. Nice. And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> Damn, I'm in this spiral. I'm in this, I'm in this spiral in my life. And I have not had men help call me into my greatness on a repeated, repetitive enough time where I can snap out of the shame cycle the fear of being vulnerable, the fear of being transparent about where I'm really at. Damn. And then I was like, I need to make some corrective actions beyond this blog. I broke up with my then girlfriend at the time because we were both hiding together. Yes. I got in my 92 BMW 325. I, I was on a call with a friend of mine who said, yo, I got this job in San Diego. They're doing sales. They're making like between 10 and 20 grand a month. I was like, for real? I was like, are you going to offer it to me. He, he was just telling me about it. I was like, can I come down and interview? I was, I was like, dude, I will leave. I will figure it out. So I was like, he was like, I, I didn't even think you wanted it, but it's, it's so interesting. I asked him and if I had not asked him, he would not have even offered the, the right. possibility of, it. but I was in such a mode where I was going to create some new possibility for myself. I said, yo, I want to make this thing happen. 
I went down there. I was like, I am going to go down there, interview. I went down there, interviewed. It wasn't even an interview. She was like, you got the job. It's a commission job. You can have it. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Good luck. Um, She was like, you got the job. I went down there. So I drove my, I called my cousin who lived in LA. I said, cause he was from San Diego. I said, do you know anybody who I can stay with? Can I stay with your mom in San Diego? He was like, you can't stay with my mom, but you can stay with her sister. So I went down there to stay with my aunt. (laughs) My aunt, who was my, I never even met her before. Right. And then I stayed down there in her son's room while he was away at school and he was at Humboldt University. And I was like, I'm going to live like a college student. I went down there. I moved into his room, November 15th, 2015. I moved into his room. He had zebra everything, (laughs) zebra futon, blankets, zebra sheets, zebra curtains. I think he had a zebra dresser. I was like, how do you, how do you have a zebra dresser? Where do you have? Where you got to look cr- up that spirit animal. You got to <laughs> <laughs> something. Yo. I was like, whatever. But I lived like a college student. And then I got a job doing a debt elimination process. It's like debt settlement. And they wanted us to get like a deal a day when I went down there and I studied. I was like burning the midnight oil like I was in the library again. I was in the library again. I was studying every night. I was staying. I was li- I was literally there until 10 at night. And I was locking the doors and, you know, like doing all this stuff. And then my first two weeks, I got like three deals. I was still in training. My first full month was December. And in my first full month, I became the second leading salesperson in the company. Nice. And, and that helped me to start rebuilding my confidence. Yes. Well, your, your comfort zone is being a star player. Yeah. 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 So it just helped you lock in and helped you remember who you are. It very much did. It very much did. And that that was a transformative experience. And that's really where things started to rebound and to rebuild from there. Beautiful. Beautiful. So for this final segment, I would love to like give everyone like the picture of where you're at now with your, you know, your amazing program now for men and in with your beautiful wife. And I saw a picture of your family. It's beautiful. Yali has a three month old and we're meeting here at 8 a.m. So he's probably been up since four. (laughs) (laughs) You are correct. It feels like the middle of the day and you should be having lunch. (laughs) That's exactly what it feels like. I had a call. I had a call with my coach at five. FYI, yeah, so. yeah, but yeah, it's just a whole <laughs> different skew of what the day looks like. <laughs> so yeah, sure. give us, paint us the picture of like when, you, you know, just dropping into you going, okay, this, like I need now to use my experience to help other men and, and really, you know, become an entrepreneur and yeah, give us, give us that snapshot in our final segment here. This is really fun, by the way. Yeah, I'm is... having fun too. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate you informing it this way. Yeah. When I was in San Diego, I was like, all right, so I'm at, I'm in this high level entrepreneurs community. I moved down to San Diego. I was, I took the Greyhound back to LA every weekend. Wow. So I was taking the Greyhound back and then eventually I made enough money. I bought a car and then, you know, so I was driving back to LA every week. Got weekend. rid so of the BMW. Got that rid of the BMW. That must have been a poignant moment. <laughs> so I got rid of the BMW physically. I didn't realize that my foot was still in the BMW until a few weeks ago. You know, I want that up to the minute insight. My body was out of the BMW. I look like I'm outside the BMW, but you can't see the bottom half of my, you know, on screen. My foot was still in the BMW. I was still, there were still aspects of my identity that were still in that car. Mm. Right. So everybody was like, you know, you have a great voice. You have a great presence. You have a great, it's like, you need to be a speaker. So I started doing keynotes 
And I started to talk on storytelling. I started to, to talk incorporating writing. I started to incorporate all these different things. And then my life really transitioned when, you know, as I'm learning from these really accomplished men in this community and that, you know, it's guys like Dave Asprey from Bulletproof Coffee and Jim Quick and, you know, and all these are the guys. And I'm just like, you know, trying to learn about who I am as a person. And then I said, you know what? I don't want to be a speaker in that way. I was like, is speaking my job or is speaking a function? And then if it's a function, then what's it a function of? Like, what am I doing? I was like, what if I stopped speaking and I started listening? <laughs> and that's when everything changed. I shut the fuck up. I stopped speaking. I started listening because that's where all the magic was happening. And then as I started listening, I started to listen ab about how people wanted to interact with me, what they wanted from me, what they needed from me, what they felt they could pull or extract from me, right? To help them to step into greater possibility for themselves. And they were essentially asking me for coaching and mentorship. So I was being asked for mentorship. I was being asked for guidance. And man, it was so confronting because of who I, because of who I <laughs> thought. Imposter syndrome. Imp enter. Yeah, all that. All that. <laughs> stage left. Yeah. yeah stage left. Who all that I? stuff. Mm -hmm. Who am I? Mm -hmm. Right. You just reminded me of, uh, of Les Miserables. Uh, <laughs> tons of Broadway in my life. My, yes. My, um, it's coming out of your pores. It's <laughs> when you were talking about your daughter dancing, I was thinking about fame. But the the idea she's living it. She's living fame. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I I I started to think like, who am I to be able to do this for somebody? You know? And then that really got me into the space of exploring, deconstructing that imposter syndrome to realize that because of the experiences that I had, because of my that the struggle serves my mission. Yes, the GFR commandment number the four that you GFR resonated commandment. with. Yeah, trust you that go. your struggle serves your mission. You my know. struggle served my mission. Mm -hmm. And it informed that all of these different pieces and the tapestry and the, the, the patching together of who I, who I was, where I've been, some of the heights that I've been able to accomplish, some of the lows that I've experienced, the shame, and then all that stuff. And then, and then the work, like working so there's a distinction between being telling and teaching. And so I used to be an intel super intellectual, like, you know, uh, I call it smarter than a dumb motherfucker, just like super, super stupid smart, <laughs> right? So smart, but stupid at the same time, mm -hmm. because, and I say that in jest, but the idea was that I was, I was outsmarting myself because I thought I could intellectualize myself through something that my body knew otherwise, right? Um, your somatic nervous system remembers who you were when you were five, six, seven, and eight years old. Your muscle memory, it is in your muscle memory. So your ability to ride a bike is the same as your, as your fear of stepping into greater intimacy in terms of who you want to become. And doing that type of work has been some of the most transformative work. So I was like stepping out of the intellectualizing it and actually doing workshops and coaching and everything to be able to walk through my shame cycle and my process to be able to come out through the other end of this. And so as I was doing that work, that's really what started to inform the work that I started to do with the men that I was working with. And then those men transformed. They were, you know, just guys that I, that I knew that were experiencing me. And then eventually they, they started to become leaders in business and CEOs and, and people that were up to bigger things that realized that they wanted to step into greater possibilities for themselves. And so that is really how that, that transition occurred to 
me doing my own work to really understand that I could stand for the work of other men who were stepping into greater possibilities and impact of other people. So the one thing that I needed to do, however, to really to shift from the imposter syndrome to the greater possibility is I had to understand the power of commitment. And I was the most non-committal human you ever would have met in your life. Fear, shrouded in fear. So what if I, you know, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out on anything. And then one day I said, you know what? I said, um, I'm starting to coach. I'm starting to work with, with men. I'm starting to, my fiance, when I first met my, my, my wife, when I first met her, when I was, she was my girlfriend at the time, she said, I think you should work with men. I said, why would I want to do that? I was like, well, who would want to do, who would want to work with? Like <laughs> I had women clients at the time. I was like, you know, like, why would I want to do that? What, what would be the benefit of doing that? That doesn't make any sense. I don't understand that. Cause I had just started, you know, coaching. Yeah. Yeah. And then when she said, and she'd been coaching for years. So when she said that, I said, I thought about it. And then when I started to realize some of the areas that I was moving through, then I was like, oh, that's why, that's why she said it, because they need someone to help them raise their standard of excellence. Yes. Right. And to be able to step into greater possibility in terms of whatever it is that they're looking to achieve in their life. And they need a pathway to be able to do it. So I was like, the first thing I need to do, if that's going to be the, if that's going to be the move is I need to commit myself. So yes. what I did is I, I had a piece, a um, spoken word piece that I, I would, when I did my keynotes, I performed spoken word. So I did a piece called Be You. The first few lines of it go, you need to be you, the real you, the brilliant, dynamic, unapologetic you. The screw what everybody thinks, the most energetic you, or the one who cares too much, damn it, the most empathetic you. Whoever you really are, that's the you you need to be. Not the you that thinks they know what I want, that's the you that's you for me. And I, I put that piece out. I did a live performance of it on Fox soul and I put that out and I broadcast it as a message to all men. I sent it out to every man about just being his authentic self. I broadcast that. And then the same time I did that, I made a decision to literally to go all in. And I decided that one of the values that I wanted to live in was being more decisive. And so what I realized is that during that period of time, I said, being more decisive, you know, life is about, I don't believe that life is black and white, right? I also don't believe that life is different shades of gray. Question, how many times have you gone in a Crayola box and seen black, white, and 50 shades of gray? <laughs> Never, right? So life is the full spectrum. Yes. It's every color that exists in the universe. That's infinite possibility. So infinite possibility. So life is not black and white, but choice is choice is black and white. All right. So to live in your power, you must be willing to say yes or to say no. And there goes the people pleaser. So I had to get rid of that dude. I had to get rid of the guy who was afraid of disappointing other people. And as a symbolic gesture in that, I burned every piece of gray clothing that I owned. (laughs) I love it. Y'all. And if you could see you can see Sanika right now. He's wearing this this schnazzy black tee with the words all in on his chest and with beautiful trademarked and branding. And so he has taken the going all in definitely to the next level. And <laughs> I'm just I, I just love that we got to hear the journey mm-hmm. that brought you to the space, because to me, that shit's the best credential ever. 
mm. is your own experience and your own coming through your own fire to get here. Yeah, it was a great gift. It was a great, phenomenal gift. That fire, I would just say that for me, in the type of work that I have stepped into, I have realized that success in business is a personal development journey. Oh, fuck sure. Right. <laughs> Definitely. <absolutely. laughs> oh my God. Yes. And, you know, for in the past two years, I've made more money than I've made in my entire life combined. <laughs> I have helped some of the men that I work with step into greater impact just in terms of their, in, in their business, in their relationship, in their life. And I'm looking at this work because I'm like, this is powerful work, yeah. right? And I still stay in the repetition of it. Like I said, I had a call with my coach this morning at 5 a.m., right? And, and I'm like, I keep going back to white belt mentality. I'm like, white belt, I got to step into your greatest power. And at the same time, step into being a student, you know, at the same rate. And yes. so that's the way that I, I receive in that moment. And I feel like that's been the greatest gift, you know, so to, beautiful. yeah, I, will you come back on my show and like, um, I don't know. I'm feeling like a, a year. I feel like a year. I just feel like you are on such a trajectory with your own, the way that you're embodying your own mission that I cannot wait to see what's next. And, you know, I, I could talk to you all day long and, and yet I know the best is yet to come. So will you come back? You have my word that I will come back for sure. Okay. I love that. I love that. It has been an absolute delight to meet you, to get to know you, to hear about your life. And thank you for going all in on this interview. <laughs> you are very welcome. Thank you so much for having me and uh, shout out to the, uh, the GFR community. It's been a pleasure being here. Live your commandments and uh, live your greatness. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That was quite a journey. I just, I felt like we can just talk forever. So I invited him to come back as you heard, which I've never done that before in the middle of an interview, because I just have this feeling even a year from now, uh, there's going to be a lot more to his story. So to stay in touch with Sanika and get a really powerful resource, you want to check out the link in our show notes to a survey about myself. This 360 survey, he says, is the most powerful way to create breakthrough success because you're seeking intentional feedback from others in a safe environment. So check out that link in the show notes and take part in that. And of course, that will be a great way to also stay in touch with Zanika. His favorite GFR commandment you heard him share was number four, trust that your struggle serves your mission. Do you know your favorite current GFR commandment? And if not, because you don't have them, then you have to go get your copy of the GFR commandments at gfr.life forward slash 12C, because it's a roadmap for getting real, y'all. And it's not a 12-step program. It's, it's pick one that really speaks to you the most right now, and that will give you the biggest breakthrough. And we talk about one at a time, one each month in our GFR squad community confession call each month, which is just so freaking powerful. I use it for my confessions and to be vulnerable and you can show up and confess, show up and listen, but it is something that will open up your heart and open up possibility in your life. So if you're not a part of the GFR squad, it's 20 bucks a month, only 20 bucks a month for you to be in the conversation, the GFR conversation. So I would love to get to know you better and have you be in the GFR squad. So go check that out at gfr.life forward slash squad. And I hope to see you back here next week. Or you know what? 
go back and listen. There's 90-ish episodes right now by the time this airs for you to explore what show is really going to speak to you and where you are right now and how that can contribute to you. So make sure you subscribe so you have access to everything. All right. See you back here next time. Bye-bye for now.